KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, April 28th. One of the few openly gay pilots is leaving the Navy. More on that just after the headlines. Fully vaccinated people can go outside without a mask and can gather in small groups outside maskless. That's the latest guidance from the CDC on COVID-19 protocols. Masks are still recommended for indoor settings. Dr. Abby Olulade with Sharpree Steely says relaxing restrictions is certainly good news, but she's worried that people will let their guard down too much. Outdoor transmission risk is quite low. But I'm also worried because the risk is not zero. I think it is important to give people an incentive because the studies show that the vaccines are protective against infection and they're also um, protective against dying. Covered California officials are urging the public to take advantage of cheaper insurance prices available thanks to the American Rescue Plan. Officials say all current customers will see lower premiums in May. There's a special open enrollment period now, but it ends this Friday. A magnitude 3.5 earthquake shook Borrego Springs at 3.50 this morning. According to maps from the U.S. Geological Survey, light shakes could be felt in Poway, San Diego, Spring Valley, Lemon Grove, El Cajon, Alpine, and Hamul. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by... Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Don't Ask, Don't Tell ended 10 years ago, and yet one of naval aviation's few openly gay pilots is on his way out. The Marines substantiated his claims of harassment after an incident following a West Coast Marine Corps ball. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh tells us why it wasn't enough to save his career. For most of his six years in the Navy, Lieutenant Adam Adamski says he felt supported as an openly gay pilot. He can tell you when that changed. It was in November of 2019. Adamski is a helicopter pilot for a Navy search and rescue squadron. Adamski was invited to a West Coast Marine Corps birthday ball at a local casino. He came back to the hotel room where the Marines had been holding an after party. When I walked into the door, I knew something wasn't right because um, the TV in that suite had been moved like on the pivot um, to face the doorway. And I saw my dress whites draped over and around the uh, the TV, and there was hardcore gay porn playing. It didn't feel like a harmless prank. It felt like something else. Some of the other Marines in the squadron wanted to find those responsible, but Adamski says he was getting ready for his first deployment as a pilot. He wanted to shrug it off and let the matter go. But word had spread. I had received numerous calls from people that are in the closet in that squadron, uh, both men and women, and and openly uh, gay service members, um, 
tell me that they, they are upset and that they don't think the climate is uh, a good climate in that, in that squadron and they, they, they think I should report it. The don't ask, don't tell policy ended a decade ago, allowing LGBT service members to serve openly. But a study in the Journal of Sexuality Research and Social Policy found 59% of service members still didn't feel comfortable coming out to their peers. Sasha Bookert is a former Marine and an attorney with the civil rights organization Lambda Legal. She says changing the law didn't change the culture. That's one thing to have, don't ask, don't tell, remove. It's another thing to have a culture where people can feel safe, you know, being who they are and not have to worry about, um, you know, being discriminated against or harassed. 18 months after Adamski reported the incident, he still hasn't received final word on his case. His version of events has been substantiated by the squadron commander in charge of the three Marines found culpable. Initially, the squadron commander even offered to pull their pilot's wings for the incident. Adamski thought that was too severe. Um, I want an in-person apology, and uh, from from all three of them, uh, I want I want a meeting to which they're there and I can talk to. Them. He also wanted something on their permanent record. The incident continued to eat at Adamski. He was in a serious relationship with an Air Force pilot who was talking about coming out of the closet. They broke up after he saw Adamski's experience. I lost a lot. I'm, I'm not happy. I no longer feel like I am um, an effective uh, leader, an officer, a, a pilot, um, and uh, I don't feel a part of the military anymore. Adamski has been called into the headquarters for Naval Air Command more than once to address his decision to speak publicly about his case. Major Alex Lim, spokesman for the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing, says the Marines initially acted quickly on his complaint. Service member, Marine, sailor in our units are um, treated with, in a culture of dignity and respect. We, we want to prohibit uh, any type of activity that, where these individuals would be harassed. Adamski stopped logging flight hours as his case dragged on. Last spring, he had a road accident that made it even tougher to qualify to fly. He was given an option as a Navy officer to retire. Adamski took it. In the next couple of months, his six-year career as a Navy pilot will come to an end. But not his quest for some kind of recognition that what happened to him wasn't right. Most people back down because of, of all this hassle, and I, and I won't. And I'm not someone that will back down easily. At this point, he says he has nothing left to lose. And that was KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Escondido police have released the name of the man killed in last week's police shooting, along with the name of the officer who shot him. KPBS's Jacob Ayer has the new details. The Escondido Police Department says 59-year-old Stephen Olson had been hitting cars with a two-foot-long crowbar near the intersection of Broadway and 2nd Avenue when Officer Chad Moore approached him shortly after 7 a.m., on April 21st. After the officer gave Olson multiple commands to drop the tool, the department said Olson continued to advance towards the officer who was backing away. Olson was ultimately shot and killed by Officer Moore. Police video of the incident still hasn't been released. 
In a Monday news release, the Escondido Police Department said, It is anticipated that a critical incident video, which will include body-worn camera footage of the incident, will be released later this week. Escondido police say they were aware Olson was living on the streets and he had previously been booked into the county jail nearly 200 times since 2002, as well as being involved in more than 20 service calls this year. Andrea Felix's grandfather was friends with Olson. She said Olson struggled with his cognitive abilities and mental health, but he was not a threatening presence. Steve was never aggressive, at least in front of me. He's never been aggressive, and to me, he was harmless. The only thing I could say is Steve was not able to cognitively put together or articulate a complete sentence. It was very apparent that you knew that he was mentally disabled or he had he had some type of mental Greg Angel of Interfaith Services says the current system of having police officers address individuals in mental health crises is a broken one. When, when somebody's in, in a mental health crisis and they're experiencing homelessness, often police are the only response a community has in the moment. Um, and it's, it's, it's just, it's not fair to law enforcement and it's also not fair to the individuals in crisis to have that be the only option. We really need mental health professionals to also be there. And that reporting from KPBS's Jacob Ayer. A protest over the shooting is planned for 5 p.m. tonight at Escondido City Hall. San Diego could become the first border county in the nation to do what immigration advocates have been asking for, to provide legal aid to immigrants facing deportation. KPBS racial justice and equity reporter Christina Kim has this story. She starts with County Supervisor Tara Lawson-Reamer. That everyone in this nation, whether you're a citizen or not, has an established right under the U.S. Constitution to be represented by legal counsel. Today, we are launching a movement to ensure immigrants facing deportation have a fair day in court. Lawson Reamer says the proposed program will help alleviate the current backlog of over 1 million cases waiting to be heard nationwide. Michael Garcia, chief deputy at the Office of the Public Defender, whose office would oversee the program, believes streamlining the court process also makes fiscal sense. As a border community, we have a responsibility to make certain that justice prevails in our adversarial immigration courts. Um, it's the socially moral thing to do, uh, and at the same time, it's economically prudent for our businesses and our tax base. Immigrants with legal counsel are 10 times more likely to avoid deportation than those with no legal representation, according to a 2015 study. It's something Mustafa Hassan, a refugee from Ethiopia who was formally detained at the Otai Mesa Detention Center, knows all too well he was able to get legal help from the Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans. Through that attorney and that help and that guidance, that's how I get my case succeeded. That's how I get in my green card now. And I mean residential you know, card. And now I'm, you know, in working and I'm in a good condition. The supervisors will vote on whether to proceed with the proposal on May 4th. If it advances, the board will review it again during budget hearings in late June. And that was KPBS racial justice and equity reporter Christina Kim.
An abandoned theater in downtown San Diego is being redeveloped into apartments and a hotel. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says the city council approved the project on Tuesday. The California Theater at the corner of C Street and 4th Avenue has been vacant and deteriorating since 1990. Development firm Caden plans on tearing it down and building a high-rise with condos and a hotel. The theater's historic facade would also be reconstructed. Critics said the final project didn't have enough affordable housing. But Councilmember Stephen Whitburn said the pros outweighed those concerns. It'll activate and revitalize this downtown transit corridor that is used by our city employees, uh, by our local workforce, downtown residents, and visitors to our great city. Construction is expected to be completed as soon as 2023. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Tens of millions of dollars are still available for San Diegans struggling to pay rent, but many who need the help the most aren't applying for it. KPBS reporter John Carroll has more. Thanks to federal and state COVID relief programs, the San Diego Housing Commission has a lot of money available to help people struggling to pay rent, about $83 million. To provide um, past due rent past due utilities and upcoming rental assistance. Azucena Valladolid is the vice president of rental assistance for the San Diego Housing Commission. She's very much aware of stats like this. Latinx people make up 57% of all renters in California, but only 35% have applied for rental assistance statewide. We are still looking at ways to improve the number of applications that we're receiving, um, specifically from the Latino community. Valladolid says the Housing Commission is leaving no stone unturned with targeted outreach to the community. Advertisements in English and in Spanish on both TV and radio, advertisements in Spanish community newspapers, Spanish postcards to 170,000 households throughout the city of San Diego, Spanish inserts, Um, and both uh, the city public utilities department and SDG&E utility bills, posted advertisements on the MTS system. We've even contracted with several community-based organizations. One of those community organizations is the Chicano Federation. Nancy Maldonado is its president and CEO. I asked her what's behind the hesitancy among many in the Latinx community to ask for rental assistance. Fear and mistrust is, is one concern, but I think there's a variety of factors at play. Maldonado says plenty of renters in the community owe money, but many don't owe it to their landlord. They either borrowed from friends and family or took out a loan or figured out a different way to come up with the money and pay their rent. But Maldonado says the Chicano Federation still wants to help in any way they can. That reporting from KPBS's John Carroll. You can find out more about pandemic aid available locally by going to covidassistance.sdhc.org. Coming up, you know, there are a lot of people who've looked at this case from the outside and have said there are flaws in the investigation, there are holes in the investigation, and there was problems with the methodology of the collection of the DNA. A new book takes a look at the mysterious death of Rebecca Zahau at the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado. We'll have that story next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by... 
the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. It's been almost 10 years since the mysterious death of 32-year-old Rebecca Zahau at the Spreckles Mansion in Coronado. A judge has recently agreed to hear arguments in a lawsuit the family has filed against the San Diego Sheriff's Department for documents that they believe will open a new investigation. KPBS's Maya Trabolsi spoke with best-selling author and San Diego local Caitlin Rother, who has released a new book called Death on Ocean Boulevard. It details details the circumstances around the death and what went on behind the scenes. And a warning, the subject matter discusses suicide, which may be disturbing for some listeners. Caitlin Rother, welcome. You mention in your book that this case became all-encompassing for you, and each time that you tried to walk away, something would pull you back in. Why do you think the story in particular kept calling to you? It's like a puzzle that I just need to finish. I mean, who leaves a half finished puzzle sitting on the dining room table. You don't, you want to finish it. You want to put that very last piece in there. Well, what is so different about this case is in many people's minds, it's unresolved. Does this book fill in some information that was elusive to the public? Absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, I'm one of those people like, why is this? Why is that? So, I mean, I'm following my own instincts. I'm asking the same questions that many other people have. And I go even deeper because I know how to find the information. So what's in the book is stuff that I thought was credible or that was of interest to readers. And in some cases, some people said things that I didn't think were true. And I want the readers to be able to hear that for themselves so they can make their own decisions. What was the experience like for you from your vantage point and your proximity to the, the salient information? You know, this case is still happening in real time. And there are people who have secrets that they want to protect. They have private stories that they don't want to tell. So I did my best to be responsible. I don't have a dog or pony or any other animal in this race. I just wanted to tell the truth about what happened. And that's why I didn't take a position on whether I think it's murder or suicide. A lot of people have asked me that. And I honestly, I still don't really know. I mean, I have some personal opinions that I'm just not going to share, though, because that's not a winning situation for me. And I just prefer to stay objective and tell tell the facts and tell the evidence and tell what I know and what I learned. And police said that their findings were the result of methodical investigative work and science. But so many experts disagreed then and they continue to disagree now. Have these opinions pretty much stayed the same? What Sheriff Gore told me was that he was actually one of the very last people to agree with the suicide scenario because he wanted to wait for the toxicology reports to come back. And when he saw that there were no drugs in her body, then clearly she wasn't drugged or coerced into this. She must have committed suicide. But, you know, this review that they did during the campaign and then took them nine months safely after Gore was reelected you know, the Zahows and their attorneys say this was just a campaign ploy. It was so superficial. They didn't re-interview anyone. They didn't interview anyone new. And they didn't, you know, test or retest items that had mixed DNA profiles with still some unidentified uh, DNA on some of the items that were tested. They also did not retest with more modern technology 
some of the items that had insufficient DNA back, you know, in 2011. So, you know, there are a lot of people who've looked at this case from the outside and have said there are flaws in the investigation, there are holes in the investigation, and there was some problems with the methodology of the collection of the DNA. So, you know, there's still room in this case to, you know, to look deeper and to look further. However, the bottom line is at the moment, the forensic evidence that they've collected does not meet or, you know, the interviews they said they've done um, does not meet a criminal threshold. What do you hope that the release of this book might inspire? Um, I'd like to think that once people know more of the facts and once people get to know the characters in this story better, that maybe they will change their minds about something that they thought based on the wrong information or too little information or not following science, you know? Um, And I do think it would be great if another agency um, took another look and looked at some things that, that the sheriff's department didn't. Caitlin Rother is the author of the book, Death on Ocean Boulevard, the story of the death of Rebecca Zahau. She was speaking with KPBS's Maya Trabolsi. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.